Well, if you're turning your Bibles to Romans 6, I always talk to the guys who preach one sermon at a time ever so often about how I know it is so very hard to just pick a passage and teach or preach. And I have a brand new or a, a new uh, appreciation for those who, uh, that's their experience more so than, say, Corey and I who preach week after week and are able to get a flow through. So we have one sermon, a standalone. Corey uh, has been gone this week, and so I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, for some reason took this chapter 6. Uh, we'll trust that the Lord will teach us through it. First John chapter 3, verse 9, one of our uh, uh, verses out of the responsive reading. You may be getting the, an understanding of the theme of uh, what we're going to talk about in Romans 6, these four, first 14 verses. First John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Uh, what John is trying to do is impress upon us the importance of understanding what it means or what's involved in becoming a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it begins with the birth, no one who's born of God, uh, and then John kind of gets serious about the results of this being born again. And he says, uh, when we're born again, our life is drastically, uh, dramatically changed. In particular, John says, in our relationship to sin. Uh, there's this radical break with sin that takes place in the life of everyone who is born of the Spirit from above. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. So far up to Romans 6, or really up to the end of chapter 5, Paul's been talking about uh, first uh, our condition before God as we're natural men and women, boys and girls, as we're born spiritually. Uh, uh, alienated from God, and he goes through the ramifications of that and how it is that we are completely, we are depraved before him. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul turns and he says, but here's how, here's the remedy. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that it's the very gift of God through faith and repentance that we receive grace from him. And there at the end of, beginning of verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul then anticipates. He anticipates a response to the, if you will, free grace, the sovereign grace of God that uh, eternal life comes simply by faith in him and not by any works that we can do or accomplish. And Paul anticipates a, 
response to that, a rejection almost of that, is his magnified grace so much to the point that where sin abounds, he says, grace superabounds. Grace abounds even more. And so he anticipates the conclusion, well, therefore, if, if the more sin, more we sin, the more that grace is revealed, sin's not that big of a deal. In fact, sin promotes God's grace. And rather than incurring God's wrath. And so he answers that. He answers it from the very core of his calling and his being that uh, that is a deep misunderstanding of the grace of God. So let's begin in verse 18 of chapter 5, and I'm going to read down to chapter 6, verse 14, and we'll pray and then we'll journey through this passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. And what Paul does here in this last section of chapter 5 is he compares Adam and Jesus. He's already made a contrast of it in the middle of chapter 5, the contrast between Adam and Jesus. And now he sort of points out the similarities, though he is... Uh, widening the gap of the differences. But verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now... The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died to to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's the glorious word of God in this section here. Let's pray, and we will ask the Lord's help. Our Father, we do come to you helpless, hopeless. Lord, without Christ, we're dominated. We were dominated by the sinful passions, this body of sin in which we live, was the means by which sin enslaved us. Most of us were totally unaware as we lived our lives for ourselves. We lived according to the course of this world. According to the passions and the desires. You know, Father, we come to you and we thank you for the little phrase, but God, we thank you for Christ, our remedy, your remedy, sent on our behalf. Father, we pray as you have laid your word out for us and preserved it through the Apostle Paul, through the ages. Your providences have preserved and kept it. We have it in our laps. We have it on our desks. And Lord, we can read, we can ponder, we can meditate upon these truths. We come to you with grateful hearts. And we pray that this active, living word of God would strike us to the very uh, uh, depths of our soul. That word which, like a two-edged sword, can separate even between the joints and the marrow. Lord, we pray you would change us. Think about our neighbors this morning next door with the cars in the parking lot representing the families and the people that are inside hearing the word of God preached. I pray that you would be in transforming those lives as I pray you would be transforming ours. I think about Will and Jonathan at First Baptist South Houston and Harvest. Lord, that this morning as Will preaches, you would use him as an instrument of transformation in the life of the church in South Houston. Lord, as we sing, what can separate us? 
I think about believers around the world who are persecuted. Who don't live in such comfortable situations as we, uh, as American Christians. Lord, those who it costs even more than we understand to say Jesus is my Savior, I pray that you would help them to know the truths of that song James Boyce has written. Nothing can separate our souls from you. And as we come back to ourselves, thinking of what we've left as we came in this morning and then even pondering where we go back to the things that we face, Lord, we pray that you would remind us nothing can separate us. Hallelujah for your persevering grace in the life of your people. Father, may that grace come alive to us as we seek to pursue holiness so that we might see the Lord for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this idea of sanctification, progressive sanctification, where once we're saved, we now are being transformed into the image of Jesus' Son is often misunderstood. Uh, uh, It's a process that the Spirit of God working in our lives, applying the Word of God, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And this progressive sanctification is both preceded and then it is followed by these two events, these two happenings, these uh, uh, two dramatic things that happen to uh, every believer. One, the first is uh, an event that's not yet happened, an event that will come one day. As God is progressively transforming us into the image of His Son, one day we'll see Him and we'll be like Him because we'll see him as he is, as John says in 1 John. That event is not yet to come. That is following our progressively becoming more like Christ. Eventually, we'll be like him when he returns and we'll go on into eternity, God's people glorified uh, in one sense as the Lord Jesus has been glorified. We'll be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, Paul says. Now the other event has already happened. Every Christian has experienced it. The moment we enter into the kingdom of God, the moment we're converted, we are sanctified, past tense, by God. Uh, We're set apart to be used by God. And when we think about our spiritual growth, our progressively being sanctified, you can read all kinds of books, 12 ways, uh, uh, six keys, uh, here's a formula, how it is that you can uh, promote your spiritual growth. 
And Sinclair Ferguson says, if there's any key to living a life of holiness as we're uh, living through the Christian life, it is in this fact that at your conversion, you have been sanctified by God. You are set apart to be used of Him in the work of the kingdom. And if we want to pursue this holiness, Sinclair Ferguson said, there's one of the real keys in how to progress in your Christian life, in your spiritual life, and that is to know that you have been sanctified. Yes, we're progressively being sanctified, but if, we, if you chase the word sanctified or sanctification in your New Testament, most of the passages are past tense. Though we use sanctification more in the present tense of a process that's going on in the New Testament, every one of us, every Christian is called a saint. It's not talking about a progressive, we're developing into maturity as a Christian. We're just a saint. We're set apart by God. Uh, We enjoy that status the moment we are saved. We're called saints. After Paul writes about uh, those in 1 Corinthians 6 who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he gives that litany of of sins that uh, are characteristics of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he then says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And when we typically talk about sanctification, we talk about justification first. And after we're justified, we're being sanctified. But here, Paul switches that, and he says, you were a sinner, but you've been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And Peter says the same thing. He says we're chose, 1 Peter 1, as he introduces the letter of 1 Peter, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. So we're sanctified by the Spirit in order that we might be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's that sense in which we already have been sanctified. Romans 6, Paul uh, has been speaking about justification up to this point, and now he begins to talk about the sanctification the the sanctification process once we are saved. But what he wants us to know is, in in verse 1, the theme here is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When we were sanctified, when we were converted to Christ, we died to sin. And that's the point. As we... Seek to live holy lives. Paul says, we have died to sin. And then he begins through chapter 6, 7, and 8 to work that out uh, fully. In conversion, we're united to Christ. Uh, 
Uh, We're united with him. We're united to him. Our union with Christ in his death, we're united with him in death, leads to our union with him in life also. So, this uh, chapter 5, verse 18, we'll just walk real quickly through those first four verses as he parallels the work of Christ and the work of Adam. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What Paul says here is one, one act of one man affects all men. Uh, affects the destiny even of all men. One trespass led to condemnation, he says there in verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And then verse 19, as he continues to make that uh, analogy, if you will, for as by one man's disobedience, here's the nature of the act he talked about in verse 18. One act, and it's an act of disobedience, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, the many there is all of us, every person. As by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience in the garden for which he's responsible. So by the one man's obedience, that's the perfect obedience of Christ, the many will be made righteous. And we know through uh, studying all of scripture that Not everyone will be made righteous in the end, so the many, that particular many here who is made righteous by the obedience of Christ is the many, the elect, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse verse 20, now, he says, uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones says it this way, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you are declared sinner, right? And then you live your life and you prove that you're a sinner. Then he says, look at yourself in Christ. Though you have done nothing, you are declared righteous. And then he kind of diverts for a second in verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. That's interesting, is it not? It has to, that had to have shaken the fillings in the teeth of the Jews. They thought that the law brought righteousness. And Paul says, well, uh, you've... You've missed the point. The law increases sin rather than diminishing sin. The law provokes sin uh, rather than preventing sin. In chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he'll say in chapter 7, the law uh, by no means, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I didn't know coveting was, he said, I I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the law didn't didn't come to help people be uh, less sinful. The law came to expose the sin, to reveal sin, so that then we might run to Christ. It might lead us to salvation, to see our need for Christ. And then the uh, there in ver- the last verse, verse 21, well, let me finish 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's what, that's the phrase that Paul felt like was going to be objected to or going to cause a problem, be misunderstood, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, and now he's going to deal with life and death. So that, As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the ultimate issues of life and death, he's dealing with them. He's contrasting sin and death with uh, grace and life, but he's showing a similarity. Just as sin reigned, just as sin was dominating, was reigning over all men, so also grace might reign through Christ, through to righteousness, leading to eternal life. So the blessing of being in Christ, what we know from Paul as he, uh, in all of his epistles, the blessing of being in Christ is summed up in this reign of grace. Grace reigns in the life of his people. Grace forgives sin through the cross, bestows righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies our thirsty souls. uh, uh, The hungry heart that God puts in us Grace satisfies with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, enabling us, enabling Christians to obey Christ in everything. Grace perseveres. It will complete the work that God has begun in our conversion. One day, grace will destroy death. It will bring the end and consummate the kingdom. All of this is through the greatness and the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Master. And so if we take this, uh, in particular, verse 20, that Paul's, that last phrase of verse 20, where grace abounded, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, taking out of context, uh, we can, can lead us to a false conclusion for the Christian. The Christian is swallowed up in grace. In fact, God is more glorified as, it, as he reveals more grace. If I just sin a little bit more, God will reveal more grace. A false conclusion, right? And Paul anticipates that. And he reacts very strongly. What will we say? Will we continue? What are you going to say about this? Where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. 
Paul says, what are you guys going to say? What will we say then if that is true? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, you know, the more we sin, the more grace is revealed. Of course not. And that's what Paul says. Yeah, the old King James is God forbid. Well, there's no word for God in the passage, but by no means or in our, no way. No way can we continue in sin. The grace may abound if we're believers. Paul reacts to this very, very strongly. He's even disgusted almost. He argues that by the grace which justifies is also the grace which sanctifies and the grace which brings us into fellowship with the Lord Jesus for justification is the same grace that unites us to Christ in such a way that, verse 2, how can we who died to sin live in it? We're brought into a relationship with Christ in such a way that we're dead to sin. Uh, And that's his point in these first 14 verses of uh, chapter 6. If we died to sin, we cannot continue to live in it. And that's the heart of his argument. No way. What will you say? Paul anticipates their uh, uh, confusion or their perversion of his teaching on grace. He said, how could you? How can we? It's, how, how can, you of all people, he's saying to these Roman, to these Christians, you of all people, I'm disappointed. How in the world can you come to that conclusion that sin has no consequence other than God will reveal more grace? You're the last ones I would have expected. So he expresses what he's saying is there's an inconsistency in who we are and who we practice, or what we practice, if that is our thinking. By united, being united to Christ, we can't continue in sin, he says. Contradicts everything we say about ourselves. If you claim to be a Christian and you continue in sin, You have a pattern of sin in your life. It's contradicting everything you're saying about yourself as being a believer. It's contradicting who Jesus is, who is the one who brings us to holiness. It's contradicting what the gospel says. We don't go on sinning because of who we are, because we're indwelt by the seed, as 1 John said, We're indwelt by the Spirit of God who empowers us, who leads us, who enables us to be different people. We we talk about the doctrine of total inability or uh, total depravity, however you want to call it. Um, We talk about it only before we're saved, right? Uh, But I say it also holds after we're saved. Total inability. Before we're converted to Christ, we're totally unable to come to Him on our own. Unless He intervenes. And when He intervenes in our life, gives us new life, we come to Christ. 
but then we're totally unable to continue in sin. Uh, to continue sinning because of who we are, because of whose we are. This is our status before Christ. We are in Christ. There is a sense we get the teaching through this progressive sanctification. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily uh, and follow me. Or Paul says, our inner nature is being renewed day by day in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is we have died. It's a done deal as a believer we're dead to sin. That's a reality. That's a truth, an absolute truth of the Christian life is we are dead to sin. And that fact will affect our practice, will affect our life dramatically. Christians don't continue in sin because we've died to it. We've been united, verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's an interesting word here uh, where he says united with him. It's the idea of something that is congenital. You know what that, you're born with it. So when you're born again, you have this because of your from the beginning of your birth you're united to Christ from the from the moment you are born into the kingdom of God you are dead to sin that's the sense that he has here in verse 5 we have been united with him in a death so we've died with Christ we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his the death of Christ is something that's been a part of our Christian lives from our spiritual birth. When Christ died, he died once for all. That's the same with us. Now Ferguson again, ever since the day when by God's mighty power we were born from above, we have had this radically new relationship to sin. The tragedy is that so many either do not know it or do not live in the light of it. We're always trying to kill sin. Yes, we're commanded. But we forget that we have died to sin. That's why sanctification so often is misunderstood. Or it gets kind of convoluted in how it is that we progress in this life. And so Paul keeps going. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, certainly we'll be united in a resurrection like his what Paul says right here is our death is accomplished through a union with Christ we are united to Christ um, here the significance is we've been baptized into Christ uh, 
Dave Carraway, who was the co-pastor of Providence with uh, me at the very beginning for the first year we were together, he, he says that this passage is not a wet passage. And what he meant by that is, this is not talking about our water baptism. This is talking about our spirit baptism when we are converted, when the Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. We are united with Christ when we're saved. And so our water baptism then pictures or symbolizes what's already happened spiritually. We've been buried with Christ and we've been raised to newness of life. So it physically portray, portrays what's already spiritually happened. So we're baptized into this union with Christ. Our union is with a Christ who died, yes, but he also rose. And so we're united with him in this resurrection life so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're new creatures, right? Uh, not a newness of occasional good works. It's a new life. Right? It's a new life. Just as Jesus' death led him to a new resurrection, a new resurrection life even to God, Paul says here. As Christians, we've been raised to a brand new life. Uh, we've died, we've been raised with Christ, we have this newness of life, and we cannot, Christians cannot consistently live in sin. It's a denial of our identity. It's a denial of the truth of God as to what the gospel uh, accomplishes in the life of a person who has been born from above. Uh, Lloyd-Jones again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talks about our union with Christ. It's a spiritual union. You know, we're joined to Christ because we become one spirit with Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, it's intimate to become one. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, this is, this is a mystery and this is profound and it's hard for me to put it into words. I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's a living union with Christ. Our spiritual life is drawn direct, directly from the resurrected life of Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's personal. Every Christian, every believer has this personal, direct union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's indissoluble. What can separate us? Nothing. Hallelujah. Uh, we don't go in and out of union with Christ. It's a once and forever deal. And all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit applying the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in His life and His death, His resurrection and His ascension. And in verse 6, we know, here's something we know, or at least we, Paul and the Roman Christians know, we know 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, our union involves the death of the old man. We have to be careful when we talk about old man, different people believe different things about what Paul's talking about, I think. Uh, But this is something that Roman Christians know we should all know, but we shouldn't. We should also live by what we know. We know that our old man has been crucified. If we're free from sin, we can't go on living as though we're enslaved by sin. And again, this language is hard. The old self depends on your version. Some of you may have the old, the old man. Uh, basically, that's just what we, who we were or what we were before we were united to Christ. That's what chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5 is all about. The person we were in Adam, that person has been crucified with Christ. We're made one with Christ. That old man is crucified and has died. That our body of sin, the instrument through which this sin enslaves us, the body of sin has been brought to nothing, has been rendered powerless. Paul's not saying that we don't sin anymore. Paul's not saying that indwelling sin is eradicated. Sin still, he still speaks of sin indwelling us. But what Paul is saying is the dominion is broken. It's, it's reign in our life is broken. Before, sin reigned like a king, and now that sin is dethroned, though it's still present. And the indwelling sin that remains has not changed. It's still powerful, indwelling sin, but we have been changed. And now we are able to resist temptation, able to overcome the impulses of that sin. It no longer has a claim. And so he can say in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Before, as unbelievers, as non-Christians, we couldn't not let rain, sin rain. It was raining, and it was going to rain. We had no way of defeating, no way of opposing it. But the crucifixion of the old man and the destruction of the body of sin does not make life a little bit different. It, it causes a drastic change in the life of the believer. We're no longer who we once were. We're no longer what we once were. We're no longer related to sin the way we once were related to sin. He says, therefore, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Anyone who has, been, who has died has been set free from sin, right? Right? Or, as I said in my time, dead men don't sin. 
Dead men do not sin. I always uh, remember the movie Charade. I don't know if you know Charade. Four guys are, are four guys have stolen some money. One steals it from the other three. He dies. They're looking for it. They don't believe he's really dead. They think he's faked his death. So they have the service and the bodies there in the casket. And the one guy just comes in and looks at it. Dead. The next guy comes in, puts a mirror up to his nose. No breath. Dead. The next guy comes in with a big old hat pin. Sticks him in the hand. Nothing. Dead men don't move. Dead men don't sin. We've died. How can we continue to live in sin? We've been freed from sin. What does that mean? What does Paul mean that we've been freed from sin? can't mean we don't struggle with it. In fact, once we become a Christian, the struggle becomes intense. All right? Begins a new conflict with sin. Paul's not talking about some Christians uh, who are freed from sin who happen uh, to... Uh, stop sinning altogether or who happen to reach this level of maturity that very few others do. He's saying we've all been freed from sin. It's true of every Christian. He's talking about sin as a master that enslaves us. He's personifying. Sin has become a person in Paul's teaching. He's personifying sin and its power as it reigns over people describes our former relationship to sin as slavery. And that sin, that reign over us has been broken. It's been abolished in Christ and no longer does it have authority over us. Although the nature of that sin again has not changed. We are set free. We're set free um, not to sin. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. We are free and enabled not to sin. We're, f- we're freed from sin and we can honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verses 8 through 10, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with Him. We know, here's something else we know, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Our union with Christ leads us to again to a new life in him. Although we're united to him in death, Christ's death and resurrection are inseparable. So we're not only united to him in death, we're also united to him in life. And we have this newness of life. We live we will live forever in Christ because He lives forever to God. What's true of Christ is true of us. We not only have a new relationship with sin, we died to it, but we also have a new life. We share in Christ's life. So we don't continue in sin. Because of who we are, yes. Because we've died to sin, 
but also because our new nature in Christ, we're able to live to God's glory. I don't know if people tell fairy tales anymore. I grew up with fairy tales. My mother was a storyteller. Remember the ugly duckling? <laughs> um, uh, the ugly duckling is a, a, a swan who kind of gets caught up with some ducks. He's different from the ducks, and the ducks make fun of him, and it ends up he's a beautiful swan by the time it's over. He didn't know he was a swan. That's how many Christians live. I think there's an analogy also, something about turkeys and eagles. We can soar as an eagle, but we live with the turkeys. <laughs> yeah. Because we don't know any better. We don't know we've died to sin. It's a great mistake. We look at our sin. Look at our failure. Man, what can I do? I mean, you know, what? Uh, it's no use. I can't help it. Isn't that what the world? I mean, you know, you can, uh, whether we talk about alcoholism, whether we talk about the, this and that, you know, you just, you, 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 you can't change your, you, a leopard can't change its spots. You're nothing, whatever. Um, and we buy into it. But Paul now answers all of these things with uh, four commands. Here's what, what we need to know. In Romans 1 through Romans 11, there are four commands. They're all right here. There's not been one command in Romans yet. There won't be any more commands until we get to chapter 12, verse 1. But he has four commands here as he turns from justification where he's just talking about who we are in Christ and he's turning now how to live. And the first one, uh, command in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is so important. You've died if you're a Christian to sin. but it won't help you unless you know you're a swan. So you got to think and consider and reckon the fact that you're dead to sin. Otherwise, you'll live defeated. The fact of the matter is we've died to sin. Consider it to be so. It's what Paul says. Think through, consider Think through this. It's not that you're unable to sin. It's not that Christians can't sin. But the sin's mastery, sin's dominion is ended. We are now able not to sin. We have the power over sin. We're spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. And God says, Abraham believed God and he reckoned or he considered it. He counted it as righteousness. Paul says in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin, Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's true if you're a believer. Now, Consider it to be true. 
You're alive in Christ. Bodily resurrection is future. This body of sin has been rendered inoperative, has been destroyed in the sense of its power to be used for evil. The indwelling power of the resurrection, dwelling in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the Ephesians might know the power that is already living inside of them, for them to consider what has happened to them because they've been saved. So Paul's command is to live by faith. Live out what you know to be true. No more excuses for sin. The Christian has no excuse for sin. God always, always has a way out of every temptation for His people. No, no chapter 5 thinking, well, uh, uh, if I sin a lot, grace will be revealed even more and more. No more thinking that way. No more justifying of your sin. Consider yourself dead and live thereby. So, you're calling us to subjectively believe in our minds something that's objectively true. And in verse 12, here's another command. Let not, or let's quit letting sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know, you go back to Proverbs 23, 7, man thinks in his heart so he is. Right belief, you believe the right things will lead you to think the right things which can lead you to right living. No guarantee, but without right belief and right thinking, there will never be any consistent living for the glory of Christ. So, uh, verse 12, what we must not do, stop letting sin win. Don't obey the evil desires of your mortal bodies. Where do quarrels, where do fights come from? It's from passions within. You know, nobody makes you mad. You get mad because somebody acts in a way that you don't like. No more excuses. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Your body of sin, consider it to be rendered powerless, as he has already said. Then the next uh, command, so that's two commands we've got. Now, quit presenting your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Stop offering your members as a means of unrighteousness. Sin, again, portrayed as a power to which we must not submit our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet. Take us to the wrong places. Our eyes that allow us to see things we shouldn't look at. Our hands to do things that are wrong. Since we died with Christ, we have His resurrection power. We're enabled to have dominion over sin now. And the result is we can not submit 
to the passions of our soul, the, the base desires. But he turns this around. Now here's what you do. He's, he's got two commands don't do. First in 11, consider yourself dead. Quit letting sin win. Then verse 12, quit presenting your members. Quit making your members available to sin. Don't put yourself in the situation to where you have an opportunity. Avoid every situation you can. You can't always avoid everyone. But don't put yourself in a bad place. Verse, in the middle of verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as to God as instruments for, un, for righteousness. Here's what we must do. Present ourselves to God. Present your arms. You know, some of you have been in, the, I, I don't know, uh, uh, the Navy, I didn't know anything about. Present arms. I didn't carry a weapon. Uh, it was too dangerous on the boat I was on. But present your arms. All the weapons I have, uh, I uh, show to my master to my inspecting general. This is, the other commands are quit doing this, quit doing that, consider, here it's a once for all present. You present your life to God. It's the same idea as put on the full armor of God. Paul is not saying, wake up every morning and put the armor on. When you go to bed, take it off. He's saying, put it on and leave it on. He's saying, present your members to God and leave them presented to God. Hmm. Offer yourselves as those who've been raised from the dead. The power of sin's broken, and so Paul appeals to appropriate the freedom that Christ won for us at the cross. And then verse 14, as we look at one last verse, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. Sin's no, uh, the law is no longer our taskmaster. As our taskmaster, it brought us to condemnation. It led us to Christ because we saw we couldn't keep it and we needed something a remedy, and the Lord Jesus is the only remedy there is for our sin, but now the law presses us towards holiness. Grace has empowered us that way. And so Paul reminds us that these commands are necessary. We need to hear daily, don't let sin reign. Don't promise God you won't sin anymore. He's not saying that. I, Promise him you won't sin like you did before. And consider in every situation that I don't have to sin. I don't need to sin. I'm free not to sin if you're a Christian. Free to offer myself, myself to God. And Paul says to the believers in Romans chapter 6, be what you already are. You're dead. Live dead to sin, but you've been made alive in Christ. So live life in Christ.
I would just say the mind is the battlefield. Right? We cast down these foolish arguments. The armor is our protection. Put on the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation. The belt of truth. And then the word and prayer in Paul's picture is the offense. Everything else is defense to protect ourselves where we might stand against the devil from without and even the evil, the indwelling sin. But the spirit is the power. We can't do it on our own. Let me just say, if you're not a Christian, you know, as Christians, we're called to be what we uh, to be what we already are. If you're not a Christian, you need to become what you aren't. Um, but unlike Christians who are enabled by the Spirit to be what we already are, you can't become what you must be apart from Christ. Uh, Only the Lord Jesus can make you what you need to be. Call upon the Lord and you'll be saved. Plead with Him to save you. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart God's raised Him from the dead. And along with Abraham... And every other believer in Jesus Christ, it will be reckoned to you. It will be put into your account. It will be counted to you as righteousness. And you'll be victorious for all time if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your uh, word your power in our life as Christians and the power of the Spirit to transform the life of those who are not. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us all into the image of Christ from glory to glory. Through the progression. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray. Amen.